Aloha, my name is Maya Sutoro. I'm a peace educator and professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. I'm also the co-founder of three nonprofits, Seeds of Peace, the Institute for Climate and Peace, and Peace Studio. This is something new. With this podcast, I'm so pleased to bring you conversations with change makers and influencers from the front lines of our communities. I believe their voices will deepen our curiosity and conviction and help us to consider things we haven't considered before. They'll help us be innovative in our thinking, and although their opinions in no way represent the organizations where I work, I'm really excited to share them with you. I feel certain they'll help us refresh our gaze, revisit our assumptions, and take action in brave new ways. Listeners, let me tell you a little bit about Grand Lum. Some of you know him from his current leadership work as provost of Menlo College. Others have read his books and other writing. His recent book, America's Peacemakers, chronicles the efforts of the Community Relations Service, an agency within the Department of Justice that he directed for a number of years. Today, we'll spend a portion of our time discussing lessons learned not only from those experiences, but from his work as the director of the Divided Community Project at the Ohio State University Law School, as a former director of Hastings Law Center for Negotiation and Dispute Resolution, and other projects fueled by his passions, research interests, and general love of writing, teaching, and working on issues that help people and communities work together in more thoughtful and constructive ways. Welcome, Grant. So happy to have you here. Great to be here. So you are an educator and have been an integral part of conflict resolution and transformation efforts, both at the governmental and grassroots levels. This is arguably a time of division when many of our listeners find themselves at the center of social storms and will find value in your insights on managing conflicts, remaining resilient and finding pathways out of rage and grief to courage and commitment. I'm so grateful for your work with my students and innumerable others to reframe conflict as requiring not only structural and procedural support, but also creative exploration and energy. You remind us that it takes great determination to see what's possible in terms of connection and that justice is a critical part of peace building for the beloved community. First, would you please share a little bit about your earth and water and what has nourished your sense of home and brought you to your current purpose? Like most Americans, my story has its roots in another country. I had a great-great-grandfather who spent a decade in Idaho before returning to Guangzhou, China. I had grandfathers who, at the turn of the 20th century, came to San Francisco and New Orleans uh, to provide for their families back in China. Because of the Chinese exclusion laws at that time, they claimed citizenship and, like today's dreamers, had a tentative citizenship status. In, in the work that I've done you know, with groups that have been historically marginalized, uh, I certainly reflect on the experience that my grandparents went through uh, when they came to this country. Uh, eventually, my grandfathers brought their wives and children, uh, my parents, uh, when, when my parents were just in their teens. Because my grandparents didn't speak English, my parents played that navigational role uh, in the U.S. for them. And I reflect on that in, in the ways that I've played a mediator throughout my career. You know, my mom has often told me that her father played like a mediator role in his hometown of Toisan in China. 
And it's nice to know I, I carry on a family tradition of sorts here. And Maya, as you all know, community peacemaking wisdom is often held in traditional cultures. Uh, being born and raised in San Francisco and, and going to school in, in Chinatown, it certainly shaped me strongly as well. Looking back, I certainly remember how deeply my you know, grandparents, who spoke almost no English, cared for me. And, you know, they would come and give my brother and I a seven up and Chinese treats like jindui, sesame dumplings. And, and Chinatown still very much uh, remains a big part of who I am. Later on, I went to an all-boys Catholic, mostly white high school in a different part of San Francisco and, and faced you know, racial epithets and intimidation for the first time, and that shocked me. And I think certainly shaped my consciousness about the work that needed to be done. Um, later, going to UC Berkeley and studying psychology, Harvard Law School and studying dispute resolution put me in contact with whole new worlds, uh, professors, classmates, that turned out to be lifelong friends and, and helped me get into this work of dispute resolution. Thank you. It's clear you've done a lot of important intersectional work uh, in the years following UC Berkeley, and uh, much of that has been as part of the Community Relations Service, where you were the director for five years. Your cases there ranged in nature from addressing the contemporary Ku Klux Klan to preventing and addressing hate crimes against Muslims or people perceived as Middle Eastern. And I know that you worked to bridge community after the violence that took the lives of Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin. Can you tell us a little more about your work and about CRS? Sure. Uh, the Community Relations Service, the CRS, it was created by the 1964 Civil Rights Act and was the brainchild of the then president, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Johnson, of course, you know, he, he believed in the importance of people reasoning their way to solve problems. And, and he understood that in times of great social change, every effort had to be made to help people work cooperatively rather than coercively. So really, for 56 years, CRS has played a big role, behind the scenes mostly, uh, in many major civil rights issues. It's not widely known, but it was created in, by Title 10 of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and it's basically what it was supposed to do was to resolve disputes, disagreements, differences based on race. And what's amazing as we look back now is that it was really the first federal legislation on community me mediation and for mediating race issues uh, in this country. And throughout its history, it's done that. It, it kept the peace in the march from Selma to Montgomery, uh, putting together an agreement that Martin Luther King and Andrew Young and others could march to the Pettus Bridge without the straight trooper violence. It made a huge difference in public school desegregation in the 1970s and working on reducing police use of force against black and brown people uh, when it wasn't uh, like it is today, an, an issue of national interest. And when I was director of CRS uh, from 2012 to 2016, we dealt with the Oak Creek, Wisconsin killing, uh, where a number of individuals were killed. Uh, Ferguson, uh, in the wake of the killing of Michael Brown and, and Sanford after the killing of Trayvon Martin. An important thing I think it's done is really bringing community voices to the table. And this even expanded further in 2009 after the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act passed. And for the first time in its history, CRS actually dealt with issues beyond race and dealt with preventing and responding to hate crimes. In addition to race, gender, gender identity, 
sexual orientation, uh, religion, and disability. So it has done that intersectional work and has played an incredible role, I think, in terms of some of the issues that are still of concern today. Thank you so much. This is critical work, and I'm grateful that CRS has been there. Can you share a bit more about your personal journey of becoming involved in civil rights community mediation work? Why is this your life's work, and when did you realize that this is your path? I came to law school with the idea of doing civil rights advocacy work. I I learned about the internment of Japanese Americans in in high school, uh, the civil rights movement, uh, and Thurgood Marshall, and law school seemed like it would be the right place to go uh, to make change. So that that was the initial thinking, at least, uh, for for why law school, and I, I had decided against becoming a psychologist at the time. My, my wife is, and, and, and so she's a, she does a wonderful job with that. Then I took a course in my first year of law school, a negotiation class with Roger Fisher and Bruce Patton. They're two of the co-authors of a book called Getting to Yes, and it changed my life. I thought it had to do with how to beat the other side in negotiation, how to get everything and, and that, but it was the opposite. It was about how to find common ground. It was about finding shared interests. And I saw that and it's like, oh, this is something different. And in my third year law school, I was tired of taking classes, a little burnt out. I became a teaching fellow for the class. And we had in the class some folks who were from the African National Congress, representatives who were going to be negotiating the new constitution in South Africa to change from apartheid system, a racial apartheid system. And I, I found my voice in a certain way there. I, then facilitating others, I, then in doing active listening, it made a difference. And that, for the first time, I'm not sure if it was, I knew it was my life's work, but I knew I enjoyed it and I knew I, could, I, I wanted to do more of it. At the same time, I was also president of the, of the Asian American Law Students Association at Harvard Law School and I was part of a coalition that was protesting uh, against the lack of women of color on its faculty uh, at, at the time. So I was provided the opportunity to join this company that did this work of negotiation and mediation. You know, I, I had really wonderful mentors and colleagues, and we had worked in really diverse teams. And I just remember over time getting more comfortable working with really difficult issues. They could be race issues, union management issues. And I remember one time working with a union management and it was two people arguing and we had like a hundred union members in the room and I was facilitating and I just used those techniques or those tools of slowing the conversation down. It was a white man, a black woman and they were in an argument in front of the whole group and I just slowed it down and asked, you know, what was your intent and what was the impact and got them to just slow their conversation down and I started just feeling more comfortable and it was something that I could do with, with that. And that's, I'm not sure, I, I knew it was my life's work, but it just kept going and I taught at Hastings and really focused on negotiation and really tried to bring in that work of dealing with difference and then coming to the Department of Justice whereas where it really all came together when I was director of the CRS. Wonderful, thank you. So this is peace building work and I use the word peace as an umbrella word and, and uh, see peace as an umbrella concept under which can be found issues as far ranging as decarceration, climate justice, nonviolent communication, economic justice, and much more. And so 
as I see it, these are all exceedingly practical arenas of endeavor. But as a peace educator, I too often have to challenge this common perception that peace is just aspirational, it's idealistic, but it's not action-oriented. Um, and I, I find that people think of peace simplistically most often as negative peace or the absence of conflict rather than positive peace meaning the presence of human rights and social justice, understanding, collaboration, and so on. So how might you suggest that our listeners reframe the relationship between the words peace and justice and their concepts? And how do you see the relationship between justice and peace playing out today? I think that's a really important question for this day and age. And it's something that I think I saw earlier in my life in a, in a simplistic way. But over time, I've really come to appreciate how justice and peace go hand in hand in working on civil rights issues and in talking to some of these wonderful civil rights pioneers and to see the use of nonviolence in the 1960s, you know, which was certainly heavily influenced by Gandhi, is a high standard. And yet I come, came to see how many very modern forms of that. I remember after Trayvon Martin was killed by the Neighborhood Watch volunteer George Zimmerman, how the protests grew louder and louder and the city manager of Sanford, another employee of Sanford, they played a key role in engaging those protesters, right? I think there's a common sense we feel when conflict comes. I know I have it as a conflict avoider of wanting to run away from, from conflict or othering the protester if you're the city and the opposite. They really pulled in, they, they pulled in us as CRS when I was working there at the time and our mediators or conciliators, they were closely in bringing together the city officials and the protesters. They convened meetings between the Sanford officials, the mayor and National Action Network and Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson. And it was such a key role. They, they helped bring together the black, white, Hispanic pastors that played a key role in tamping down the misinformation and polarization there. And by doing so, they, they welcomed the protesters, the city officials did, and, and the late mayor, uh, Jeff Triplett, really credit, credited CRS with building harmony uh, when, it, when it could have gone, could have gone south. We had suggested that the mayor speak at a protest rally. He, he didn't want to do it, um, but he did it. Initially, he was booed. And then the congresswoman, Corinne, Corinne Brown, came forward and, and praised Mayor Triplett for, for welcoming DOJ to do a civil rights investigation. And Mayor Triplett always said that changed the entire dynamic uh, for, for the city. Um, there were, you know, there were about 80 protests, but there were zero arrests, there were zero balls thrown. You know, it was a huge story at that time, but it, it is about cooperating across divides. It is about, in some ways, how can you separate the people from the problem and, and have the people work on it in a positive way. Thank you. Thank you for that. And what you're helping us to see is that conflicts are opportunities and we have to be willing to lean into them sometimes and be uncomfortable, especially if we are conflict avoiders, mm -hmm. um, in stepping into a role that will enable us to use conflicts to understand more deeply um, our own capacity to engender change and innovative solutions that are being brought by the community and so forth. The protests that emerge from these conflicts are obviously a vital part of American civic engagement and socially just transformation, but 
Protests are seldom enough to heal, right? They're not enough to change systems of injustice necessarily. There needs to be layer activism on top of them. How do you think people can best stay invested as upstanders and advocates to do that additional work? Because I find that the average citizen... Um, after protests, sometimes they feel frustrated by feelings of impotence and they start reverting back to that fight, flight, freeze series of options. So if you wouldn't mind sharing in terms of civic engagement, community relations, participation, what do you think the role of our listeners could be and how should people be utilizing their gifts and networks um, after protest? That's an important question. I, I see these moments as a call to engage. Protests can be a very positive thing, right? It's, it puts a light on a, on a subject that may not have been seen before. Then the question becomes, well, what to do with all that energy? And we know conflict divides people. When, what I noticed when I was on the ground where there were protests is what is often not covered by, by the media. It's all the people who are doing, as you're pointing to, the positive things. I mean, I, I'd see people cleaning up after protest, uh, helping with the shopkeepers. Um, I've seen local community leaders who then say, we need to work better with our local law enforcement to rebuild trust. I, I remember being in Baltimore after the Freddie Gray tragedy, and one early Saturday morning, driving into a Baltimore neighborhood, it was, there was nobody in the streets. I go into this large building, and there's a very large room, and there were dozens of black women. It was a black sorority uh, that was there to help people who had who needed food, who needed water, who needed toilet paper. And also, uh, why I was there is that we were providing a training to many of these sorority sisters so that they could help with protesters who want to keep the protest safe. They were doing so with all the protesters who want to do things safely. So there's, it has been wonderful to see people who are so committed, what we, we often don't see, to the point of you know, what, did, what to do to the listeners, to people who, who feel powerless. And, and I can see that, right? We, we see all this difficulty here. I think there are a lot of things uh, that folks can do. There, there's, there's so much a need for people who want to help bridge. There's a need uh, for that, whether it's your local condo board, a neighborhood council, it could be a civilian review board of police officers. You can volunteer at a local community dispute resolution center and help people with their neighborhood disputes or their workplace uh, disputes. In times of polarization, you know, we really need to broaden our definition of community uh, and peacemaking, not narrow it. So I think, again, it's an opportunity to, to lean in, as you were saying earlier, because we need it. Often folks who are engaged are often the people who are very passionate and advocating for the issues. To have more people who are passionate and who are advocates of working better together is a truly needed thing right now. And there are a number of organizations that are doing good things around that. There's a group called Braver Angels, Search for Common Ground, uh, and others who are getting people to talk across divides uh, as, as well. So I'm a professor and faculty specialist at the University of Hawaii, and you're a provost at Menlo. How would you say working in higher education helps one to think differently about peacemaking and conflict resolution? And why work in a college community, in other words? And what is most important in terms of education for peace and justice, as you see it? As I mentioned earlier, I mean, one course changed my life. I, I, I don't know what I would be doing if I hadn't taken this one negotiation course and it opened up my eyes as to how to work with identity-based issues in a way that really felt comfortable and, and really felt like it's a place that I wanted to continue to, to, to work. 
something I've thought about here is, you know, I, I've worked, we're all working in an area and we all build on the work of other pioneers in the field, you know, wonderful peacemakers. You're, you're talking about John Lederach and there, there are many other folks who've been in this field for a long time and I learned from them. Nancy Rogers, a woman I worked with at, at Ohio State, uh, who has been a mentor to me as well. And these are people who I learned from. And I think it's now my turn to a certain extent to also help the next generation uh, of peacemakers uh, as well. I also find, you know, I, I work at a, a small, a wonderful college in, the, in Northern California, Menlo College. And it's a very special place. It's, it's small and you know, it's about 900 students. It's one of the most diverse colleges in the country. We have about one third of our students are first generation. And we know that the data tells us that if a student is the first in their family to get a college degree, it just changes the trajectory of that person's life, of the, the likelihood of their children going to college. And so it's, it's just terrific to, to see that. We had our um, graduation ceremony, which you were wonderfully the speaker of this year. And our valedictorian spoke so eloquently as an individual of autism. And you know, she'll be starting a terrific job at a large accounting firm. There's a way in which they challenge us. We had a, we had a Black Student Voices, a student and alumni group challenge us on, on how we could do much better still on welcoming Black and Brown students on our, on our campus uh, as, as well. So there's so much to be learned. They, they, they challenge me in the best ways and I hope I'm able to challenge them as well. Would you tell me a little bit more about the work of the Divided Community Project at the Ohio State Law School and the, the Center for Negotiation and Dispute Resolution? Sure. Uh, the Divided Community Project at Ohio State's uh, Morris College of Law was a project that I was the first director of. I, I mentioned I, I worked with Nancy Rogers, the former dean of the Ohio State Morris College of Law along, along with uh, Professor Josh Stolberg and Professor Sarah Cole. And it came at a moment where, uh, again, our country was becoming very divided and it was important, how do we help people prepare for polarizing situations? This could be on a college campus, this could be within a community, and the, the, the Ohio State's Divided Community Project has been really focused on working with community leaders, working with faith leaders, law enforcement leaders, student leaders in being prepared and to help transform, to help take that moment of conflict to, to readjust it and say, what can we do that, to bring something better to our community. The University of Hawaii actually sent a team to the first uh, college academy last year, and it's given them, it's really helping community leaders throughout the country. When there are difficult times, we've actually had clinics where we bring in folks who've gone through those situations in the past who can provide coaching and consulting to help them. So it's a it's a project that is doing, I think, terrific work. It writes, creates reports uh, on how to deal with polarization, and it also brings people together, and it provides real-time coaching and consulting as well. Fantastic. And, and this is work that is so needed in so many parts of the country and world, so I'm, I'm sure their practices can be instructive to to many. What can you tell us that would surprise me and our listeners? What do we not know that you know because you've done this work? I'm a conflict avoider. I, I grew up very shy. I grew up 
thinking that conflict was a bad thing. And maybe it attracted me to the work that I wanted harmony, right? I want people to, to get along and we can, we can look at our, our own situations and see that. And then what I've learned over time, which might be surprising is, I think we really have to think about it from a justice standpoint that, you know, as John Lewis said, the late John Lewis, the civil rights pioneer and Congress member, that there's something called good trouble, right? That conflict, really, it's a good thing because it creates a discussion. It creates momentum for something that's unjust to become just. Uh, and I think that's something we all have to remember about conflict and about polarization. I think what peacemakers, what mediators can do is to keep good trouble from becoming unnecessary trouble. And John Lewis also talked about that as well, that he was, he was always very complimentary about the work of the Community Relations Service because he was there, of course, in, in the march from Selma and Montgomery, and he had gotten his skull beaten in the, in the first march, but saw CRS helping to keep them safe as they went through the second and to the third march. To me, it's about reframing conflict. It's, it's about really thinking about how something can become better in what we do. I certainly still remember a situation in helping a police chief and working with a civil rights leader and how by talking to them and seeing what was underneath their conflict could make things better. The chief was upset with the civil rights leader because after making an agreement, he went in front of the police station's steps and then insulted uh, the, the police chief after having come to an agreement. And they both ultimately felt bad about it. It was really powerful to see how the civil rights leader was then able to apologize for what he had said and to then act differently. And that's what's possible. And then to actually come up with agreements that increase the accountability and transparency in that police department. So there was actually something really positive that, that came out of it. Grand, you are an Asian American leader. Uh, what have we learned from this last year of escalating anti-Asian violence and how we can deepen or, or grow our commitment to take that hashtag activism and turn it into ongoing and meaningful work of racial and social justice, equity, safety, inclusion. What do our listeners need to know, in other words, about the opportunities of this moment? First of all, I mean, it, it has been heartbreaking, right? Especially to see what's happened to elders. Uh, I, I've certainly seen it in the San Francisco Bay Area, but it's happened through, throughout our country a, as well. And of course it's painful as a person who is Asian American and to understand throughout my lifetime and to see it for my children uh, of what it means to be perceived as a perpetual foreigner, right? That no matter how many generations your family has been here, to see that still happen. And it's certainly troubling to seeing the vulnerable being scapegoated, right? Scapegoated by definition is being blamed for something you did not cause here. So that is hard, right? No matter who it is, we, we, would, we don't, as a, any society wants to protect its most vulnerable, no matter what their, their, their race, no, no matter what their ethnicity. I do think, as you were mentioning, there's been 
media focus on it. And I think that's a really positive thing in the sense of we're becoming more aware of, of, of it. It's led to some hard conversations, right? It has led to hard conversations between different communities, between the Asian American community, the black communities, Latino communities in this country. And I think that's been a good thing. I've, I've, I've had good conversations with, with leaders from different communities here. It has also raised some very difficult issues of poverty, of mental health, of real issues of resentment as, as well. So those conversations I think are important. I think the allyship is important. What is heartening at a certain level, I think what we need to continue is, I've seen people really engaged in a way that they haven't been within the Asian American community across the board. You know, whether they're in the working class, whether they're in the professional class, uh, whether they're in politics or in, or, or in film. And that's important to see the bigger picture as well in terms of political empowerment. You have spoken about the need to fundamentally shift our mindset to one that is less individualistic and competitive and more collaborative. Why do you think collaboration is so crucial at this moment? You know, social justice requires advocacy, right? It requires people being upset of calling for justice and for change, right? And, and that's really important. What I think we can also bring to that this moment is collaboration too, is is cooperation. Uh, you know, whether after the 1964 Civil Rights Act, there were a lot of leaders who worked together. Uh, whether that was um, in Alabama, where businesses took out pro-civil rights ads in in Alabama newspapers, whether it was white progressive former Southern governors playing a key role there. That is the moment where, yes, we want to fight and we want, we want something to change. And it is the same moment where we need to even as fiercely say we need to work together. I, I remember certainly during, the, during my time at, at CRS when there's that sad tragedy of what happened to Oak Creek where several congregation members from a Sikudwara were killed, working with them, working out of this tragedy to make something positive out of it. They worked, Sikh civil rights organizations worked closely with the Community Relations Service, the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, the FBI, to make sure that hate crimes reporting, that, they, that people would be counted to understand the reasoning behind uh, hate crimes. And they worked very hard in doing so. And, and again, you know, there can be problems when you're working with Muslim and Sikh groups here. But, but that was something they did to deal with the tragedy. And I think, so I think true justice requires peace and true peace requires justice. They, they, they still go hand in hand. And how can we reimagine the role of conflict interventionists and peacemakers in our communities, Grand? I think when I entered the field, I mean, I, I was like, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, working as a young person uh, with representatives from the African National Congress who are changing the world. And I thought like, wow, you know, I can go out and I can, I can change the world here. And it's not so simple, right? It's, I think there's a way in which what someone who does, who is, if you've done a lot of work in this field, you recognize there's a lot of intractable conflict out there. There's a lot of, of things that don't change right away. And the job is to open the door for people in a conflict. It's still up to them to walk through it uh, here. And sometimes it's helping people disagree without disaster happening, that there are going to be times. I, I remember working with a large city, I'm going to keep it confidential, 
with the police chief and with the Black Lives Matter group, and they had stopped talking to each other. We played the role of shuttle diplomacy. To, we were the trusted party that they were willing to talk to to convey the messages. It was cold, and the protesters brought heaters. The police took them away, and there was real danger of people freezing here. And we were able to figure out a way to, to bring heaters, uh, safe ones, to them. Uh, the Black Lives Matter group wanted to be arrested, but we helped them do so in a way that there wasn't unnecessary uh, violence or unnecessary harm done. I think we need to think about those who do conflict intervention work as helping people through intractable conflict, helping people disagree better even. And so I've learned to do it with more humility. We're not gonna change the world, but we can help people restructure their dynamic a bit to, to not, to, to separate the people from the problem when they can, uh, and to, to disagree sometimes about being overly disagreeable. And in all of this, what gives you hope, Grant? I referred to it earlier, I think young people, you know, we talked about it for those who are in college. I mean, I've seen so many young people. We, we talked about the anti-Asian hate issue. It's really the young leaders who are changing things right now. They're the ones who are really leading us to a, to a better place. I, I see it in my students at Menlo College. There's a, uh, one student, Courtney Cooper, who won the Social Justice Award this year. She, ch she challenged our institution. She has challenged other institutions around issues of disability, uh, issues of what it means to be black uh, here. The last thing I remember of what really gives me hope is, it was funny, I was thinking about something that happened many years ago, and I just didn't think about it until fairly recently about how amazing that kind of was. <laughs> I remember being in Boston, uh, it was hot, I went and bought a Coke, and the guy who was selling was this young guy, he was of South Asian descent, we started talking, he was from South Africa, he had come to Boston University, and it was just really coincidental. He had taken a two-day two -day negotiation training from one of my colleagues in South Africa. Uh, it was Doug Stone who wrote the book Difficult Conversations, and he said that at his, he took his two-day training, went back to his town, and there were like people with guns there, and he was able to talk them into putting down their guns. And he said that if I could learn that from a two-day training, just imagine if I got a four-year degree. So that's why he'd come all the way from South Africa to Boston University. I didn't think much of it then because I could, oh, okay, yeah, somebody who's just doing the work. But now I look back and say, that's amazing, right? And that, and I see that in the young people, in young people today, and, and that's what really gives me hope. And, that's something we can all do, regardless of our age. You know, conflict can trigger the fight or flight response. That's understandable. As we've talked about, conflict is a part of social change. And let's remember that conflict is also opportunity. It's an opportunity to understand someone better, to test your own assumptions, and ultimately to bridge our differences and find common ground. Thank you, Grant, for all of those responses. We've covered a lot of ground. Thank you for the work that you do and the legacy you're building and for the guidance, inspiration, and mobilization that you offer to others, especially young people. Uh, listeners, I hope you feel more inspired to confront the complexities of big social challenges and begin to reframe conflict as an opportunity for healing, growth, and transformation at both the individual and societal levels. The stories that we heard today are uplifting. Uh, listeners, please tell your own stories and listen to those of distant and different others. 
Such storytelling and listening is how we learn to care, name ourselves, become aligned with our choices and environment, and release the potential within. Uh, the truth is that some people have only heard narrow umbilical stories that nourish hatred, racism, bigotry, stories that are crafted along the dichotomies of us and them. And we can change and grow these perspectives so that a community might examine and broaden its commitments to nourish justice and positive peace building in truly imaginative ways. The CRS was a governmental initiative um, that supported community source solutions. And as citizens, we can uh, support initiatives like that. But there's also much that we can do on the front lines to know one another, feel our interconnectedness, feel that sense of mutual responsibility, and struggle and engage in creative activism to reduce suffering and violence. Thank you for being here today. Don't forget to check out the episode guide to conversation and action linked to the podcast description. Join me for future conversations with really thoughtful, creative people who are helping us to wash our eyes and nourish a sense of possibility around difficult social challenges. Thank you so much for listening. Please share and stay in the conversation.